Hello, everyone. This is Jeff G. from Dallas, Texas, and welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. So let me get this straight. You got a problem that's a nine. You got a solution that's a three or four. What were you thinking was going to pick up the slack here other than untreated alcoholism or untreated addiction? I had come to believe that there was a supernatural event that relieved people of their burdens that they carried in this life. And I knew it for a fact because I had seen it happen to someone I had cared about. And even if you make a mistake, this invisible, benevolent, loving power that we choose to call God will honor your position. Trying to please God in and of itself is pleasing to God. But you may be new and not know anything about that, but, but come in and give it your best shot. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. My name is Michael Lynn from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Lee McGinnis from Leesburg, Virginia. As members of the recovery community, we created this podcast as a way to provide experience, strength, and hope through the lens of the Daily Reflection book. Each day, we interview members of the recovery community in the hope that their experience may provide inspiration. We value inclusion and diversity, and we really want to provide a platform for all the voices of recovery. We aren't affiliated with any 12-step or recovery program, but you may hear these mentioned throughout the course of an interview. Hey, before we get to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave us a comment or a rating. This is going to do a couple of things. It's going to help us expand our reach and improve the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Lee, who's in the studio today? Hey, Mike. So today we have Jeff G. He's from Dallas, Texas, and it is May 7th. He's here to share with us on today's daily reflection, which is respect for others. Hey, Jeff, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you both, Michael and Lee. It's good to be here with you. Fantastic. Well, we get started in the same way every day. We ask the guests to read the daily reflection for the day. Jeff, would you get us started? I sure will, Michael. This is May 7th, respect for others. Such parts of our story we tell to someone who will understand yet be unaffected. The rule is we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. That's from Alcoholics Anonymous, page 74. Respect for others is the lesson that I take out of this passage. I must go to any lengths to free myself if I wish to find that peace of mind that I've sought for so long. However, none of this must be done at another's expense. Selfishness has no place in the AA way of life. When I take the fifth step, it's wise to choose a person with whom I share common aims because if that person does not understand me, my spiritual progress may be delayed and I could be in danger of a relapse. So I ask for divine guidance before choosing the man or woman whom I take into my confidence. Wow, that's, it's an interesting reading for sure. Thank you for reading, Jeff. Before we get started, can you share your sobriety date with us? My sobriety date is November 22nd of 2002. Okay, great. As you read this, what is the first thing that comes to mind for you? You know, I'm reminded that in uh, the, this is taken from the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, that in 1935, the book was written from the context of mail order sobriety. And there's a number of places where that becomes very apparent in the big book where it's saying now that you have a prepared inventory, you may want to talk to your minister, a rabbi, a friend. It, it kind of revisits that principle back in um, A Vision for You, where it says, we know what you are thinking. Yeah, but I'm one man with but a book in his hand, something like that. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. 
And so when they're obviously the culture of any 12-step fellowship is like we we tend for the most part to read our fifth step to our sponsors, right? But when they introduce this idea, it said perhaps think well before we choose the person or persons with whom we're going to share this intimate step. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience with the fifth step. How long did it take you once you started to get into recovery to get to that fifth step? You know, when you say get into recovery, that's a very subjective statement. I'll tell you a little story. This may actually fit here. I used to work at uh, County Mental Health at Detox 16 years ago. Sometimes I would see these guys coming through that were like the frequent flyer plan, you know, and these guys were just beaten half to death by alcoholism or addiction. And sometimes I'd say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, you know, 10 being you're the guy with this liver rotted out in the city park and homelessness and things like that. And one being you're a college kid who drinks a bit too much. On a scale of one to 10, what would you say your problem was? They always said it was, oh, it was a nine or a 10. Okay, it was a nine or a 10. And then I'd say, hey, you've been in in 12-step before, right? And they'd say, oh, yeah, I've been in 12-step before. And I'd say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how strong would you say your solution was? 10 being you made all your amends and you sponsor others, active commitment in your home group. And they always said a three or four. And so it was like, okay, so let me get this straight. You got a problem that's a nine. You got a solution that's a three or four. What were you thinking was going to pick up the slack here other than untreated alcoholism or untreated addiction? And I say that because I that was my truth for a long time. I drifted in and out of 12-step fellowships, not understanding what, what it was that was being asked to me, thinking if I sat in a room and talked about my problem long enough or, or shared about my day long enough, that something fundamentally was going to change on a spiritual level. Although I didn't even have the language, I just thought, well, this is what we do, right? I had a very limited understanding of what happened here. Consequently, I was to find no real recovery at all. As a matter of fact, what I found was shipwreck, heartbreak, and disaster. Having said that, you know, you asked me what my experience with the fifth step was. And one of the promises that had come true for me was, you know, we we all have our secret take to the grave stuff. And when I was a young kid, I used to sleepwalk and talk. My mother and sister told me I would kind of claw at the walls and scratch at the doors and hurl tremendous obscenities at the family. Like there's no disturbed pathology there. I'm just saying, just, you know, a regular 12 year old kid growling and clawing and doing all this stuff in the middle of the night. But what had happened was I think by my sort of secret stuff that was going to be my take to the grave stuff had kind of already happened by the time I was 16. And what I had developed was I developed a fear and a phobia of um, sleeping in the room with other people. I thought, well, what if one of these nights I just spilled the beans on myself? What if I started sleep talking and did like, you know, basically did a, a, a sleeping fist step with somebody? I mean, it sounds light and humorous now, but it, there was nothing funny about that at the time at all. Because I had kind of reflected, well, I guess if, if that were to ever happen, if I were to ever succumb to that mistake, it, it would probably be the day I would commit suicide out of, out of shame. The next day was my thought around that situation. And so when I finally was able to unload all my baggage at the age of 30, and it was the one promise that didn't come true for me right away was I did. I felt like an overexposed Polaroid picture for a minute. Until I think it was when I started hearing other people's fist steps that I really understood like 
there, there truly was no judgment there reserved for me around any of that stuff. But yeah, I felt a little overexposed. I also felt really, really sober. And I felt like I had been given some sort of special license to actually join this spiritual fellowship, which I had never felt a part of before. So that's more or less my the short version of my experience. Well, I love hearing that. I mean, a couple of things kind of rang out to me as you were sharing. Number one was just that that shame that we carry around. I think a lot of us do. And I used to have that same fear for getting put under, like going into surgery or something. I was like, I'm going to spill the beans under the influence of whatever it is they give you to fall asleep. But just how much shame we all walk around with and we're so isolated in it. And it's not until the first time we do a fist up that we ever really share honestly with anybody, anything, and then to realize that it's such a freeing thing. So I'm just curious because it, you know, with the fifth step comes after some other steps, like it comes after one, two, three, four, (laughs) we don't jump in. And for those that are listening, if you're new and in recovery, we don't do the fifth step until we've done some other steps ahead of it. So I'm just kind of curious what it was like for you when you first got in, what was the process like in early recovery, getting introduced to the steps and in the order that they go in? Lee, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. The truth being what it is, I was inducted into what was a very strong brain, the 12-step at that time. And by that, I mean, I was asked to read. And just so you know, I don't want to scare the newcomers away. They're like, well, this was just the people I was running with that had a very strong message of Alcoholics Anonymous. They used to talk about mastery over the principles in the big book, and they would say things to me like, your life is not your own. You destroyed it on November 22nd, 2002, and the remainder of your life will be spent in the service of others. And they told me, if you've got someplace else to be, you're welcome to go there. But for me, that was kind of cool because it was, even though it was a strong message, it wasn't being forced on me. It was very invitational. I was free to accept it. There was a lot of time spent on the actual wording of the book, using a dictionary and what was it trying to say. And um, I was actually asked to read every chapter seven times in seven days. And we would read it on the eighth day with our sponsor, everyone in our little, you know, in our little group that met at this uh, woman D's house sort of went through the book like that. And so it was a very strong brand. And I got to say, I'm a guy that had been around treatment, you know, AA meeting halls for about four and a half years. I'm a guy whose illness did not yield to information. It certainly did not yield to wanting to do something different. And it didn't yield, in my case, to fear of going to the prison or streets or anything else. Also, the, you know, some of our, some of the things that, that are very artifice of a 12 step fellowship, first things first, 900 pound phone, those things seem to impact or slow me down. Not at all. Right. And so I was a, I was a guy in short who flunked his AA classes, right. Attending them. And so when it was shown to me that there was this textbook that was for people that had flunked their AA classes like me, I had an inkling that, that it it was going to take something maybe a bit stronger to create a movement in my life as far as, you know, alcohol and, and um, heroin and crystal meth were concerned, right? Those were seemed to be problematic for me as I, as they probably would anybody. So I'm curious how you met that, that group of people, or, or was it one person, maybe your sponsor that introduced you to this, at what sounds like a fairly strict or close interpretation of what's in the book? You know, as it turns out, those people, they had used to do an H and I at a treatment center 
And so they had kind of cased me out, believe it or not. Someone had told, you know, we lived in a community, Tucson, which was about the size of Fort Worth in the sense that it was a small enough community that where people that had, had been in, been around, ha- happened to know each other. And so word had gotten around to these people in the group called Little House that I had been in and out of there, none too successful for about a year. I mean, you guys, whether I'm in recovery or not in recovery, I kind of tend to leave an impression sometimes, I think. I remember going to this little house meeting and they, somebody asked them if they had a topic. This almost makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous looking back. But uh, somebody asked if they had a topic and I was like, I have a topic. I want to read a poem I wrote about heroin, you know, very Jack Kerouac. Just open up my book of poetry at the 12-step meeting, start reading a poem about heroin. And and one of the times the chairman said, um, she says, hey, why don't you take that book of poetry you're working so hard on? Why don't you pass it around the room? And everybody left a phone number in there. So these people, this these people that were kind of there, there was this, these guys that were like undercover that were a strong brand of sobriety. And they had seen me in that meeting. And then one of them who I knew a little bit better than the others, Leo had heard, I had been transferred from the social detox to some housing over on Stone and Glen Avenue. And they had had kind of a, I guess, like a business meeting around it one night. They said, hey, who, which one of us is kind of like a draw straws? Which one of us is going to go try and help this guy? And it just so happened that at that time, I don't know if I had ever been ready to hear the message before, but I do know I was ready to hear it then. I had been living on the streets for a year. I had been living on the rooftop of a parking garage and living behind a hospital and living in a dry creek bed and then breaking into people's car windows. And I was I was basically living off the change in your ashtray, had been for about a year. And there was a couple of times, you know, if you see a gold Cadillac on rims on the wrong side of town and you break his window, there's a strong chance you're going to get mauled by somebody a lot tougher than you are. And I had that experience a number of times. I mean, it was, uh, you know, waking up in the desert heat, especially I remember that last summer in 112 degrees with um, little insects flying in your ears, ants crawling across your face. Um, your legs are bitten up from laying out in the desert and being bitten by ants and waking up sick and poisoned from alcohol and other substances. That was the backstoppage of what experientially I had a lot to build off of when I was reading about the allergy and this thing called a mental blank spot and this thing called a curious mental twist and trying to take, you know, because parts of my story resembled the big book very little, honestly. The first time I read Jim, story. Okay. For the newcomer, we have a thing called the big book and it gives lots of examples of different people and, and their, their stories are in there to illustrate something about alcoholism. As an example, there's a guy named Jim and he mixed his whiskey with milk and he was a car salesman. Now I've never been a car salesman. I, at that point, I'd never particularly been successful at anything in, in the business world and I had never mixed anything with milk. So what was easy to dismiss at a first pass, reading that book in jail, once we took the milk and the car salesman out of it, and hey, did you ever set out to be sober? And you had a new, and suddenly a new thought replaced that thought at that moment on that day. And I began to see that I was very much like Jim and Fred in that respect. And this sort of pinnacle of human failure had been built upon the principles 
of a mind that simply could not remember. It was like I had amnesia in the face of the drink every time. I simply could not remember the trouble it had caused me. And once I put it into my body, it didn't serve me very well there either. And so, um, well, you said, you said just so many good things. And the, the one thing that I heard you say was, you know, I didn't, I really wasn't willing to listen and I didn't hear anything that made any sense until I suddenly did hear something that made sense. And I was willing to listen because I guess maybe you had exhausted all your options. I'm curious about when you decided that you all of a sudden could relate to, to the car salesman on some deeper level than just the job description and the drink of choice. Was that at the beginning of your AA experience or was that a year later or, you know, how long did it take you to suddenly become as open-minded as only the dying can be? Well, Lee, that's a good question. You know, I had struggled a great deal through my twenties and I, by the time I was 26, I had gone into psychosis. I had had a nervous breakdown. I had poured paint thinner over everything in the house. I had burned my own house down. I had already had one felony arrest. Uh, by that point, I hadn't been driving. I was just way too irresponsible for that and had really kind of bottomed out. And I wish I could tell you that was quote unquote rock bottom for me. But the truth is for somebody like me, I don't think we we have one. You know, I was in in our book, it makes mention of another book, Varieties of Religious Experience by written by a man named William James. And I do think I look back at many experiences pre-sobriety. Our book is written in linear fashion, past tense, right? Here's a set of directions, linear fashion, 1 through 12. Our, the, the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, every step tells you why you need to take the step, how to take the step, and what happens once the step is taken, or sometimes what happens if the step isn't taken. We call those the promises. So there's a very linear forward motion told from a narrative of the author's point of view, which is in past tense. I know that's saying a whole lot, but looking back in retrospect, and when I when I think of some of my good peers and best friends in the 12-step fellowship, I don't know experientially that we experienced the steps in that order. I had a step two experience before I had a clue what the problem was. I, a friend had driven by, it was like he was my Evie, his name was John. Last time I had seen John had been a couple of years before. He lived in, a, in an abandoned van that was waist high in weeds that was full of empty wine bottles and a sleeping bag. And John was like the living dead. I mean, he looked terrible and he disappeared off the face of the planet one day. The next time I saw him, he was driving a red sports car and his hair was combed and his eyes were bright and he gained about 80 pounds and he was talking to me real fast and he had a blue book on the seat of his car. And now I had turned into John. I'm the skeleton on the side of the road. I remember having a fantastic and supernatural viewpoint of the change that occurred in him. I knew he did not pick himself. He was way beyond that, guys. He wasn't a guy that turned himself around. He was a guy that couldn't turn himself around. But the fact that he showed up and he was different spoke directly to my soul. And, you know, it's funny because it wasn't that I hadn't been exposed to 12-step, but he was the only guy I had seen the before and after photo of, right, where... I'll be honest, I'm cynical and everybody else, I had my doubts. Yeah, you say you got seven years sobriety. I kind of doubt that. I feel like you might be lying. You, I'm sure you drank on Christmas, but I knew who John was and I saw him afterward. And just like Bill saw Abby and said, there was something unmistakable in his eye. Like 
And so it was like, you know, seeing a vampire or something and very supernatural to me. So I began to wonder if what happened to him could happen to a guy like me. Now, I didn't have any clue mechanically of what my first step was about, but I know in that moment I had had a second step experience. I had come to believe that there was a supernatural event that relieved people of their burdens that they carried in this life, and I knew it for a fact because I had seen it happen to someone I had cared about. So here you are. You talk about this amazing journey. It was pretty graphic. I mean, you talked about being in the street, living outside, and today you appear to be, you know, back on your feet, clearly, uh, well-spoken, uh, of, of clear mind. This is miraculous. So you talked a little bit about the second step and the concept of a higher power. Can you tell the folks that are listening that may not be familiar with how these steps come together to form a solution? Like, what was the solution that you found? That is such a good question, Michael. And I think there's something to be said for Surrender isn't a point of view. Surrender is a working position that only validates itself when everything comes after that so-called surrender is met. And like we could use, uh, you know, there's probably some people that speak on the circuit. I know one of them very well because he sponsors my sponsor that talks about uh, the Japanese surrendering in World War II. Trust me when we say that was a very conditional thing. That wasn't signing a piece of paper saying we give up. That was signing a piece of paper with a list of conditions that had to be met or the rest of the island was going down in a sea of fire as well. And so, you know, our I think our surrender is in this sense is conditional, right? What I understand now is there's an invisible benevolent force most of us don't know what to call it, so we defer, we we kind of default to the position of calling it God, and that's what I'll call it, God. There's a divine, invisible, benevolent force that when I took certain actions, seemed to wrap itself around my life and seemed instantly able to produce a different outcome. And it was a bit like turning a light switch on or turning a light switch off. You know, I noticed in that first year, I won't tell you the story, but I think one time I got hit by a rain puddle uh, by a passing bus, and I. I went to my sponsor soaking wet full of complaints and he asked me what I had done that week. And the answer that week was, you know, not much. And he said, have you ever noticed you're happier when you're always in motion? And I think that's when I begin to put together, when I take this sequence of actions, it's like flicking a light switch on and I feel well, others seem to be helped and something seems to be happening around me and coming through me. And when I stop taking those actions, I don't feel well. And poor old Jeff wishes he was dead again, just like he always did. And then everything seemed to, and, and for a guy that is as sick as me, and one thing I will share with you experientially in my 18 years of recovery is I can get sick pretty fast and I can also get well equally as fast. Sometimes I feel, you know, I've had experiences in the last, you know, 10 years where it felt despairing and angry. And, it, it, you know, one of those moments where it feels like nothing's ever going to be okay again. And come to find out a good conversation with a solid friend, couple of prayers, turning my attention, helping some guy out in a grocery store. And I'm like, right as rain, like seven hours later, and like, man, I'm on top of the world. What was I despairing about? But that's kind of in some senses how this thing works, I think. So. I have, I have that same experience and it's part of the faith building process for me, like over and over again, you know, having those moments of despair, putting the tools that I have into action and then recognizing that, oh, now I'm all better. Whereas before 
coming into the program, it was just this endless sea of despair that I was never going to come out of. And I actually thought that was my destiny was to constantly be in depression and despair and anxiety. And today I don't live there very often. So, but I know what to do now when I get there and I still do. And it sounds like so to you. And I know Mike does too. So what do you suggest to people? And maybe there are newcomers listening that are just feeling this whole thing out and they're struggling with some stuff. Is there a set of suggestions that you would offer them? Like when you're feeling restless, irritable, discontent, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, do these four things and and you're probably going to get better. You know, we had talked about I had talked about earlier, uh, and thank you for the question, Lee. I had talked about working at that county mental health, and I talked about that scale of one to 10. And I would ask the people that are out there, ask yourself, how bad was your problem on a scale of one to 10? And if you think it was an eight or a nine, make sure that your, your effort here is vigorous and that you could say on a scale of 10 that your vigorous effort into this program is an eight or a nine. I want you to let you know something, even if you make a mistake, this invisible, benevolent, loving power that we choose to call God will honor your position. Trying to please God in and of itself is pleasing to God, but you may be new and not know anything about that, but, but come in and give it your best shot. I would say, look for the people in the room that you may actually at this point in your sobriety be repelled by, oh, those people think they know so much and they're always opening that book. Sometimes that might be the right move for you to, to find the person who, you know, water seeks its own level, right? So some of the people you may be drawn to right off the bat may not necessarily be well enough to get you where you need to go. But I, I, I'd say get in here and give it all you got. I would say try and give a, a good 12 or 15 hours every week to doing something recovery related, whether it's talking out on the phone or helping some guys move some hot couches around at the Oxford house or, or something like that. Get, get involved, get in the middle of this thing. Fantastic. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us. This has been a great conversation. Yep. Thank you for coming. Absolutely, Michael and Lee. It's been good to spend time with you as well. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Daily Reflection Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Daily Reflector. You can read stories of recovery from our community at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app. We greatly appreciate it. Have a great day.